This is Melissa Ford Locken. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan Seraph and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to to Lansing. Hey all, this is Melissa Ford Locken, editor from Washington Square Review. Today I have with me Melissa Elms, whose piece To Belong at the Edge of the World is in the Summer 23 issue. Thank you for coming, Melissa. It's nice to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. Could you tell us a little bit about your piece and what was going on in your life when you wrote it? So To Belong at the Edge of the World is a kind of a character study that I started thinking about ideas of place and belonging. Um, I was thinking about ideas of feeling alienated in your own community. I'm not really sure where it came from. I was a military brat growing up. We moved every three or four years um, until I was in high school. And I think it probably has some residual angst being worked through there. But just this sort of idea that you you should belong, but you don't feel like you do. And the idea of feeling a little bit alienated as a result of having different interests and different sort of life expectations from the people around you. And how do you navigate that? I think that's really fascinating because while your examples are very specific in the piece, it's something that everyone can relate to, regardless of if you grow up, you know, by the side of the sea or in the city. And it's also something that is cyclical. And I think a person might go through different phases in their life where they feel this kind of disconnect in their community, even you know, multiple times over a lifetime. I think that, you know, this is sort of this character, it's her first time feeling this in this sort of very tangible, visceral way. And I think you're right. I think she's starting on that journey of discovery and rediscovery and rediscovery and kind of continuously trying to reinscribe who she is in the world and what the world is for her. Where did the inspiration come for the seaside aspect? I was just thinking about living at the edge of the world and what would that look like? I think possibly it comes from the, um, the medieval Mappa Mundi, the maps of the world from the Middle Ages. Um, in my day job, I'm a medievalist. I, I do medieval literature and culture. And when I was writing this, we were looking at the global Middle Ages and kind of looking at maps. And I think I was just looking at, you know, in a medieval map of Mundi, in particular, the Western European maps, you have sort of, you know, Jerusalem's at the center of the world and the rest of the world kind of branches out from there. But all around the perimeter, you have this sort of circle of ocean and all it says there is here be monsters, right? And so I was kind of working with that sort of trope of the edge of the world is, is water, right? That's pretty fascinating because in the piece, you do have lives in the water. You mention creatures in the water. So it's the water isn't the edge, really, of the world. It's kind of the edge of the land, but then the world continues out into the water. Talk a little bit about the creatures that you have in the water. 
So, you know, the water is always teeming with monsters and monstrosity. If you look at, and, and again, this is looking at medieval maps, they always have these incredible sea monsters, giant monsters, small monsters. They're all wonderful to look at. I'm always interested in how there are so many living things and so many ways of living so far beyond what humans can see. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that I'm really fascinated with and preoccupied with as a writer, both in my fiction and my poetry. And so I, I was really thinking about, you know, we have this rich, rich body of folklore in every culture that is adjacent to water about what's in that water, right? And I was kind of pulling from that and thinking about what it's like to live in a culture that both relies on the water for its livelihood and is also in a folkloric sense deeply suspicious of and afraid of that same water, that life-giving water is also a terror. And I think that's so fascinating, that that tension that lies between we need it and we love it and also we're terrified of it. It's just, it's something that's always fascinated me. That is really interesting to think about people when they don't go in the water, but they're still affected by the life and the mythology that comes from the water. So it exists in their imagination, but not in their real life. And I think in some ways it's more real because it's imaginary than it would be if you actually encountered something. There's something really incredibly immediate and arresting about these imaginary fears that, that humans have across the board about all sorts of things, right? Do you think that's because they can't see them? And in your own imagination, you can create whatever it is that's most maybe terrifying to your unique mind? I do, and I also think it's to do with the deep-seated need that we have to understand things, to classify things and to know where they are and what they are and understand them. And when we don't, we tend to make it up mm -hmm. or to insist on finding a way to explain it that somehow gives it some kind of sense and assigns us some sort of power over it, right? Whatever it is. I think that's fascinating too. Yeah, that certainly makes sense that the creatures of the sea would linger longer in someone's mind because they can't classify them because they can't see them. And someone else may see the creatures in the sea or the life in the sea or monsters or whatever we call them in a different way. So it's an ongoing conversation with no resolution. Exactly. And it's that lack of resolution and that tension in that that I'm really, really interested in. Does that tension exist in other places in your writing? Mostly between people in place and people in people. I'm really interested in the ways that people interact and don't interact. And I'm really interested in the silences in things that are said and things that are not said. I think I tend to kind of try to slip between lines of poetry and lines of fiction and try to find what's going on within and beyond the story as much as in the story think I think too much. <laughs> and I think that comes out in, in what I'm writing in some ways. Talk a little bit about your process between the fiction and the poetry. What's different about it or what's similar in the way that you do the creations? One of the ways that my fiction is a little bit different from the fiction of others is I am actually more interested in the image and the central image than I am necessarily in the narration. And then with poetry, I'm equally invested in the narrative and the imagery. And I think that that is a distinguishing factor of my work. I generally speaking, and, and this is such broad strikes and, and it's terrible because you shouldn't simplify <laughs> things, but I think we tend to see poetry as being imagist in nature and fiction as being narrative in nature. And I tend not to, not to make that distinction so much. I tend to start with 
an image, a snapshot, a photograph, some some picture in my head that won't go away. And then I start writing to find out why, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, that won't go away. And depending on what that why turns into, it's either going to become very clearly a longer prose piece or very clearly a poetic piece, a sort of a shorter, more metaphoric kind of approach to it. Um, but the it always starts with, with an image, with something that's, that I'm seeing. How do you know which direction you're going to go, fiction or poetry, when you go through the process? Not until... <laughs> Not until about the second or third draft. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is it usually an intuitive thing? It's not for me. It's it's really, you know, I, I'm a discovery writer. I start just by sitting down with the paper and that picture in my head and, and just writing to figure out where it is and what it's doing and why it's there. And then that shapes into being more about the image or more about my response to the image and then that shapes into being more about what's particularly arresting about the image or why I can't focus on the image, and now I'm focusing on my response. And then that kind of turns into, oh, this is going to be a poem. Oh, this is going to be a work of fiction. Oh, this is going to be a creative nonfiction essay. It's a bit of a process. Uh, in some cases, it goes quickly. In some cases, it it's still going. <laughs> there have been many situations where I've gotten, you know, 10 or 20 pages in and realized this is not a story. This is like a little poem (laughs) let's let's scale back um and there have been many places where i've had you know a three-line poem and it's the image still isn't going anywhere so then i have to keep writing and then it's not just a poem now it's a couple of poems now it's a chapbook now it's um going to be a short story as well and and that same image just moves and shifts into different forms some of them are very wily that way and I think, you know, when I'm thinking about my my first book of poetry, Arthurian Things, it came it actually came out of my scholarship on the Arthurian legend. It started as critical essays, and then what I was trying to figure out wouldn't come through the criticism. And so I started writing fiction, and that still wasn't working for it either. And then it just turned into a series of poems, and, and that fit. And so my work tends to be hybrid and multi-genre, and it's really just process of discovery constantly and, and rediscovery. That is one of the things I noticed. You were kind enough to send me some information about your background and what you've been working on and what you are working on. And I was really fascinated by the way that you'd gone from the intense academic scholarship and into the creative writing, because a lot of times it's the other way around. And now that you've talked a little bit about your experience of not, it sounds like you were not completely satisfied with what you were getting in the scholarly writing, and then you moved toward the creative. You talk a little bit more about what that was like personally, the way that it felt to move from one. They're not really extremes, but they're, they are quite different. They really are. And I, you know, I was one of those sort of very over, as, as you can tell, overthinking <laughs> children, um, deeply preoccupied with, you know, the life of the mind, the world of the mind, what's going on internally, interested in the world as well, and just trying to make sense of it. And as a child, I wrote a lot. And I really thought, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer. And my parents very much encouraged that, but kept also reiterating, well, but you have to have a job and you have to be able to support yourself. (laughs) And I turned the message around in my head to, you can't be a writer because you won't make money and you need money. So I ended up going into teaching. And I think for a long time, you know, I taught K through 12, I taught nine through 12 for most of it. And for a long time, that was enough. 
And then I got vaguely dissatisfied and then I got really dissatisfied. So I went back to university to get my PhD because I wanted to do the research and the writing and lesson plans weren't enough anymore. And when I went back and got the PhD, that that fit for a long time and it still fits. That's still an important part of, of who I am and, and of my writing. But I think the entire time, what I was looking for was a creative outlet and teaching for a long time was a creative outlet. And then the research and the writing and, and putting together research into, into an article or into a book, that's also a creative outlet. But at some point about three or four years into my career as a professor, I realized, yes, this is great, but I'm also still vaguely dissatisfied and I'm still trying to create something and I'm still trying to push the boundaries of what I'm doing. So I went back to do the MFA and I realized, you know, I came back to my roots. I realized I'm, you know, I'm a myth maker and I'm a storyteller and teaching is storytelling and writing scholarship is storytelling. But I was missing fiction and poetry. I was missing the creative elements. And so I, I kind of feel like I've gotten to a place now where I, I understand so much more the trajectory of my career and it makes sense now i understand what i've been doing and what, how i've been going about it um and i'm i'm glad to be where i am where i can do all of these things that that are important and they kind of come together and make sense to me now it sounds like you described the process of your your life journey was very similar to your writing journey and that you sit down and you start to do something and then you see where it takes you and then it changes shape and then you look back through so that's yeah, just the process of discovery, right? It's absolutely. Just discovery. <laughs> I love that because often people think that successful writers are very um, planned and they always have an outline and they know what they're going to do and then they sit down to write it. But that cuts short that whole discovery process. And I think some people end up discouraged when they sit down. And I love that you said that you wrote 20 pages and then you're like, oh, this isn't what I want. <laughs> because a lot of people, the idea of writing 20 pages and then having it not be the final product, they, would, they might see that as a failure because it's not what they wanted. But sometimes you just have to make a giant mess in order to clean it up. I think you just summed up my entire adult life. <laughs> well, that's good. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I think, especially for non-traditional writers, you know, people have this tendency to think, well, I'm too old or I should have done this sooner or, you know, there's a lot of regret involved in coming to it a little bit later. I think, though, when you look back, you realize you have been writing all the time. Maybe you haven't been writing for publication, but you know, there's never been a time when I wasn't scribbling away at creative work. It's just, it was, it was getting to a point where I felt that I had a point of view that was mine. And I felt that the genres that I was writing in were appropriate for what I was trying to accomplish with each piece of writing. And then I got to a point where I realized that I don't have to choose in terms of this or that. I just have to choose what the appropriate vehicle is for what I'm trying to do right now. And I think that was the most liberating moment. <laughs> and it happened during my MFA and it was because of some of the coursework that I was taking. And it was just so liberating to realize that the messages that I had received or that I had created out of the messages I was receiving from, from my parents and from the society at large about writers and writing were not correct. And that it was possible to 
to do this and and be very satisfied in what you were doing without necessarily having to be, you know, Stephen King or Neil Gaiman in <laughs> order to accomplish what you were trying to accomplish. I'm interested in what you were saying about the um, the experience of getting the MFA. It sounded like that you were getting a different community surrounding your work. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like to have that different community and specifically, like, what did it look like, this other community that liberated you? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, the MFA was entirely for me. I didn't tell anybody except my husband that I was doing it. Like, it was, it was like this little <laughs> sort of, and the reason that I did that is because the reason I went back to get my MFA was the same reason I went back to get my PhD, which was I have terrible imposter syndrome. And I feel like I need the credentials that society thinks that you have to have in order to do the things and be taken quote unquote seriously or be viewed as a quote unquote real scholar or real writer. And, you know, for me, that was the correct path because I needed that. I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody. If you don't need that, then don't do it, right? If, 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 but I did need it. And what the MFA gave me was it gave me a responsibility to myself to get things done that I otherwise wouldn't put time and effort into because I wouldn't have time for it because I had to spend my time on my family or I had to spend my time on my work for, for my day job. But here I was taking courses and I had to produce pages because I had to workshop them. And that essentially gave me permission to write what I wanted to write and not feel like I was stealing time from other things that were quote unquote more important. And the community that I had, you know, I did it through Lindenwood because why not? You know, I, I could do it with the faculty tuition benefits. And what I found was I found a community of writers who got together once a week. I took a once a week on, on ground class. And that moment was really, it was, it was ritualistic and it was sacred. And it was, it was a place for us to just leave our outside world behind and focus on writers and writing. And for me, that was the space that I needed to start making sense of what I was trying to accomplish and how I could accomplish it within the parameters that I had already inscribed upon myself. You know, I had a family I had to be responsible for. I had a career that I had to be responsible for, but also the ones that are put on you by society. As long as I was doing this for a degree and for credit, then it was legitimate work that needed to be done. And, and somewhere along the way, my professors and my my colleagues, my peers in the program helped me get to that point, that point that I needed to get to where it was crossing the threshold into, no, I actually don't need to justify this in any way because I am a writer and writers write and therefore it doesn't require justification. I'm just going to sit down and take this time and do this thing that I need to do. I'll forever be grateful because I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't taken that that degree because I don't think I would have ever given myself the the right to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's just my personal trajectory. I think that brings us a little bit back to the piece that's in our issue is because the, the voice in the piece is also struggling with the imposter syndrome and, and the value of their work and what is the value of their work. And I think that, that that's something that resonates with a lot of people, especially creative people, because it's hard to balance your responsibility and your family and your obligations and what society tells us is important with the own, you know, the creative drive that lives inside yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking about it now also in context, you know, with the, the SAG-AFTRA strikes and the writer strikes and, you know, people, people's responses to them, you know, 
I'm a hundred percent pro strikers, you know, don't be a scab, don't cross that line. There are so many people who are up in arms and they're like, well, uh, you knew what you were getting into when you went into this job and, um, well, you need to be producing the content and you have responsibilities. And there's this interesting conflict between society wants the writers and the artists, but they don't want to give the writers and the artists the time, space and, and financial stability that they need to create. And so I think, you know, when I'm looking at this piece in that context, it, it strikes me as even more resonant because here we have this girl who does not feel that she's valued for what she brings to the table. And yet her community could, if they allowed her to be happy with these stories that she's telling and be entertained by them and, and have that artistic creativity among them. Um, and I, I just feel like that's, there's a lot of that going on in our society now that makes the story kind of resonate more strongly for me. It reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how even teaching is storytelling, because it is. You know, in order to communicate with students, we need to frame things in a way that makes sense. And essentially, that is that is a story, you know? That is a story, absolutely. <laughs> so it's a, a beautiful thing that in different contexts doesn't get the value and respect that it really should. Because as you said, people desire it and they, they want it and they long for it. And it's the thing that brings us together as humans. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to kind of go um, back a little bit, and you mentioned that you didn't tell anyone, aside from your husband, that you were working on the MFA. So it sounds to me like that kind of created a little sacred space for you and your creative work. Was keeping it separate from the academic work and your real life, you know, your real life work, or whatever we're going to call that, did that help your productivity? Um, Not in terms of just the creative work, but it kind of busted some dams open that needed to be busted open across the board. I realized that my scholarship was the writing that I wanted to do. It just wasn't the only writing that I wanted to do. So that was helpful because I had been a little bit stymied in that. Um, I realized that I, I didn't only want to produce critical scholarship. I also did want to write about teaching, which was something that I had been cautioned against doing too much of. Mm. Um, but what I, one of the things I think that was essential for me was realizing that the way that I conceive of my writing across the board is I'm a critical creative or a creative critical. You can put it either way. And I, I'm opting not to differentiate between them the way that I used to. I used to place a very hard wall between my scholarly work and my creative work. But realizing that I was using my scholarly work to fuel my creativity and as a, a funnel or a channel for my creativity made me realize that they're mutually synergistic. I don't do creative work without critical thinking and I don't do critical work without creative thinking. And so I'm going forward. Um, I've opted to, to kind of just understand that I'm a hybrid. I work, I work in the middle. I work, um, kind of through both areas in, in all aspects of my work. And I think it's better for it. I think that's, that's my voice and that's my style. And that is, that is my contribution. I'm really happy with that. I'm, I'm happy with where that has gone since I finished my MFA, I've been more productive across the board in all areas because I don't, I don't force it in any one area. They all work together. And I think that's the, for me, that's the best place for me to be working from. That does sound really, really awesome. What are you working on currently right now? Oh my goodness. So right now I, you know, like everyone else writes, I'm working on my novel. Yes, of course. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm working on a collection of short stories that are, it's a kind of a linked novel, a novel linked in short stories. 
I'm working on um, a couple of potential poetry chapbooks. Um, I'm not sure exactly where they're going right now, but one of them is two sisters who have been diagnosed with breast cancer who are kind of navigating their own trajectory and also their sort of stressed, strained relationship with each other through this. And then in terms of scholarship, I'm working on a collection of essays that I've brought together contributors who are doing this critical creative hybrid. So they're selecting a medieval text that they love that's not one of the sort of canonical big texts and talking about just personally why they love them and sort of melding the professional and the personal. And uh, I'm working on my monograph, which is on violence and feasting in medieval literature. So several things in the mix right now. <laughs> that sounds like a good mix to keep you busy for sure. <laughs> I'll be busy. <laughs> <laughs> if listeners would like to connect with you online, where can they find you? So I am on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram and threads and Blue Sky Social, all at M Ridley Elms, R-I-D-L-E-Y-E-L-M-E-S. Okay, great. We'll post those in the show notes so that people can find you online and follow up with all of your projects and just hang out and check you out on social media. So sounds good. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming and talking with us today. We appreciate your spending time with us and sending us your piece. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington square on air where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's Literary Journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. 